What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney 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 Alec Torelli has a unique perspective as it relates to decision-making based on his career as one of the most successful high-stakes poker players in the world. Alec has won millions playing live cash games and some of the biggest tournaments live and online. He has traveled to more than 45 countries applying insights from his experiences towards life and business. On this episode, Alec discusses how to make better decisions, keys for learning new skills, and other frameworks he's learned from his years playing and coaching poker. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. So Alec, I'm hoping we can use today in your expertise as a professional poker player to, to try to navigate life for everyone who's not a professional poker player and use some of the tactics and strategies. But you just finished up the World Series of Poker. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, I've been playing poker for 15 years, 16 years. And, you know, no matter what you you do in poker, no matter what you check off your bucket list, there's something about the inner 16-year-old inside of me that is still captivated by this dream of the World Series of Poker. And it's kind of like the one thing left that I would love to do in poker is make a deep run at the main event specifically, not a side tournament because that's not what I grew up watching. That's not what captivated me about poker. That's not what created the poker boom. It's about that main event. And so I'm inspired by that every year. Like sometimes you get burnt out from poker. You know, it's a zero-sum game. It's... it's it, requires a lot to compete at a high level mentally and physically. But every time, every year, you know, World Series of Poker time, uh, I get inspired. And, you know, I'm even more inspired, re- re- really, because for so many years, I skipped it because I was out in Macau playing, you know, the high stakes cash games because there was so much opportunity there that it was actually, it would have hurt me to actually go play the World Series, even though, you know, that was, it was still something that was fun. So I missed it for, you know, four or five years. Um, and so the last two years I've been going out there, and it's amazing. You know, there's a mixture of coaching, which I, I am really lucky to get to coach different people that fly in from around, you know, that come in from everywhere. It's like the melting pot and everybody goes to Vegas during the summer for the World Series. So there's all these people that come, you know, it's like the biggest event of the year. Um, it's just, there's an energy there and uh, it's, it's, an, it's exciting to be a part. So you mentioned that energy. I'm almost thinking about uh, an NFL player entering the Super Bowl where it's so difficult to not get caught up in all that buzz. So how do you maintain just a level head coming into a huge event like that? That's a great question. And some of it, some of it's experience. You know, it's easier now having played the event many times or having been fortunate to play on television or make final tables. You know, when you get acclimated to something, even though it's a stressful situation, you just get used to it, right? Just like your body getting used to working out or anything like that, you know, or being on stage, you know, the first time is frightening, terrifying. Then you do it a couple of times and you're just like, okay, the world didn't end. You know, there wasn't a meltdown and uh, I'm okay. 
So that helps, but I know that that's not a great answer for people that are looking for their first time. But one of the things that I always tell, you know, aspiring players or people that reach out to me or, or people I'm coaching in, in poker is always just like, don't do something new on game day. Like don't buy a new pair of sneakers or change your diet on race day. Like do what got you there. Like there's a reason that you're playing in this event, right? Maybe you qualified, um, maybe you proved that you're good enough. Maybe you saved up money, you worked hard, you beat the competition. So there's a reason that you're, you're here, right? You're, you're there to compete with the other people. So do what got you there, play your game. The reality is 99% of the people are gonna lose, right? There's only one winner and sure 10% of the people make money, but most people lose. And so you're going to lose anyway. You're favorite to lose anyway. You might as well go out swinging. You know, go out on your own terms. Go out with no regrets. You know, trust your gut. Play your game. Trust your instincts and just like, you know, enjoy the experience. As hard as that is to say, um, it's just about like living in the moment and, and, uh, and just taking it all in. So I think um, that's something that I wish I did more like in the, in the first events that I played, but you know, I got used to it and, and that's, that's helped me on my, on my journey. Yeah. I mean that advice about not changing things up on game day. So I come from a sports background and certain times right. game day would come, you eat something totally different, you change the uniform. And it's like, why the heck was I doing that? It was so negative in terms of my overall results. So I'm thinking, what is it like prepping for a huge event like this? I, I'm even interested to, to dive deep on your weeks leading up to it. How do you prepare for the magnitude of the WSOP? Yeah, so it's funny. I actually put together a piece of content called How to Prepare for the WSOP. And it's, you know, like a 10-page blog post, 20-minute video. Like I just put out everything I do. So if you want more content, you can look that up on YouTube or consciouspoker.com. It's out there. But like, <laughs> it's wild, man, because, you know, you luck is where preparation meets opportunity, right? So the old great quote by Seneca, and it's like, you don't know what luck you're going to get. So you're putting in all this prep work to be in the best physical condition possible because it's 12, 13 hour days of sitting at a table and you have to be physically fit, right? Because you have to be, your body has to be able to handle it. Then you have to be mentally sharp. So your diet has to be on point. You have to be, you know, you have to do your workouts. You have to do your like for me, it's about doing meditation and like making sure my mind is there because you're only making decisions for like, what, 20, 30 minutes a day. It's like golf. You golf 18 rounds. My mentor once told me, you golf 18 rounds. And how often are you swinging the club? Mm. Like 10, 20, 30 minutes. But what are you doing the other four hours, six hours of time? That's up here in your head. So I'm preparing as much mentally as I am physically, right? And so you're doing all this prep work. Um, you know, so, so those are some of the things that, that I'm, I'm, I'm focused on my diet, my, um, exercise, my meditation, and then obviously all the studying, right? So you're studying for all these different situations that you could encounter. Maybe you face a situation where you're the one with all the chips. And so the strategy is a, it's a completely different strategy than if you're the one with no chips, right? And then you have to have strategies for different stages of the tournament. The tournament's 10 days long. And as you can imagine, the strategy changes intensely with each day that goes on. And so you're preparing for these infinite possibilities and infinite situations, right? Whether you're playing against good players or bad players. And so there's just endless amounts of strategy to prepare for. And you're doing it all knowing that one bad hand, you know, one mistake, or maybe not even a mistake, one turn of the card can end everything for you. And so, but you know, that all you can do, you can't control the hand you're dealt, only how you play the cards. So you know that all you can do is focus on 
playing the hand the best way possible. So you're putting in these months of preparation for this one moment that could end that something completely beyond your control. And it happened to me last year. I don't want to complain about luck, but I, I had two aces. I went all in. Someone else had ace king. I'm 92% to win and be the chip leader. And I lose the hand. And those months of prep work are now just gone in a second. And so it's, it's this constant mental battle too, to know that, you know, focus on what you can control, forget about the rest, you know, focus on how to play the hand. Don't worry about what cards are dealt. And if you are lucky and you have that prep, then good things will happen. And you have to keep putting yourself in that spot. And I think that's the name of the game in poker, but also in life to a large extent as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening to this and I'm not a pro poker player. So I'm like, oh my gosh, the amount of variables you have to deal with. Obviously, this is your domain expertise. So is it about compartmentalization in terms of just figuring out what you need to concentrate on at those specific moments? You mentioned the 10 days, then the 12 hour days along that journey. I mean, is that what it's about? Breaking things down into smaller components? Yeah, so just to kind of put some perspective on the variables, um, if you actually... Uh, shuffle a deck of cards and deal and you you deal it out. They don't know because nobody can prove this, but they actually expect, it's actually very extremely improbable that two decks have been shuffled the same way. So if you look at all 52 card distribution and how they line up, it's actually almost impossible that there has been exactly the same two 50 card, 52 card distribution. So that's how many possibilities there are in poker, right? In the history of the world, there's probably never been a deck that's been shuffled the same. So, you know, you're preparing for the impossible, right? But there are certain things like that you can focus on, right? It's kind of like the 80-20 principle, right? 80% of things come from 20% of the inputs or you wear 20% of your clothes 80% of the time. And so it's sort of similar in poker where 10 or 20% of the situations happen 80 or 90% of the time. And so you're preparing for those. For example, what to do with your first two cards, that's a decision you have to make every single hand, right? It's kind of like someone pitching you an idea and you have to go to that next step. So you might not go to, you know, the, the stage where you're actually series B raising money. That only happens if you get deep into the hand, so to speak. But someone pitching you an idea is something that happens every single time you're going to make an investment, right? Or evaluating a company, deciding whether you want to buy a stock happens every single time. And so you prepare for the situations that happen the most often. And then the more experience you have, the more that you're prepared for circumstances that have never happened. So if you watch a good uh, performer or a good person on improv, they could be in front of an audience and they, of course they don't know what's going to happen. They've never simulated this audience or this interaction or this comic, but they know the essence of comedy. They know how to you know, engage with people and read a crowd and, and be entertaining. And so they could be in a new situation that they've never prepared for and still perform better than everybody else. Remember, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be better than your competition. So if you're excellent at poker and you're excellent at playing cards and you understand math and logic and game theory and you create a new game, you know, the person that's the best with those fundamentals is going to be better. Just like an athlete. If you're an amazing runner, amazing sprinter, you have incredible strength and amazing endurance and we create a new sport, I mean, who's going to be better, that guy or the obese guy, right? So if you're just prepared for everything, in terms of the essence of poker, with the math, the logic, the psychology, the game theory, you're going to be better equipped to handle any situation that comes up. And that's sort of what you do. 
this is making me think of uh, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. He talks about skill stacking, and it's very difficult to be the number one in the world at something. But if you can be in the top five, 10% across two or three different domains, then you can become the best in the world at that collective. So, so I'm interested for you personally, what are those big skills you think you're probably in the top 5% and then you've just comboed? That's a great question. So I actually don't think that I'm, you know, I'm not the best at anything. Definitely not. Um, my math is, is good. It's, it's, it's not world-class. I mean, it's good, but it's like, there's some people that are like the Germans or the Russians that are just unbelievable. They could just, they're like computers with the math. Um, but my thing, my, like everyone has their one skill set, kind of like a car. You know, if you have a huge, big expedition, you know, it doesn't get great gas mileage, but it can store a bunch of stuff. But if you have a Ferrari, uh, it, it, it drives very fast, but it can't do what the expedition does, right? So everybody in poker, and you, you'll see this in other sports too, like a center in basketball is different than a point guard. They have different skills, but they're both great players. And so in poker, everyone has a sort of different forte. And you have to be great at every, good at everything. You can't just be like, have debilitating weaknesses, you're never going to reach the top. But it's really about doubling down on your strengths. And I think a lot of people focus too much energy on you know, overcoming their weaknesses. But I think in life and in poker, if you really want to exceed, it's about doubling down on what actually you are great at. Um, so what <laughs> uh, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to come across, come across uh, arrogant, but I think what people tell me that I think I'm good at in poker is just the psychology and understanding people. So where I think I, I find edges in the game is um, I could understand what the correct, you know, book sort of play is. I can understand what you're supposed to do. And then I could sift out a, a nuanced situation where I feel like this is a particular time where this guy is not bluffing. He actually has a really strong hand and I can make a fold that other people won't make. Or I could determine this guy's probably bluffing me here. And even though the book says fold, I'm going to call because I just feel it. You know, I could just kind of understand like what level people are thinking on and then just think a little bit, little bit outplay them in that way. So that's kind of been my skill. That's why I really shine in live poker where I can see other people be around them. I can get to know them. I can understand how they think about the world, which impacts how they think about the game. And then I can use that to see how they're going to make decisions in real time. And then most importantly, be aware of how their emotions are shifting throughout the session because it is a roller coaster and people are always going from ebbing and flowing. How long have you been aware of that skill for yourself? Is that something you felt you even had when you were like a kid? Or is this something as you played more and more hands, you just understood human nature and how people were responding in real world experience? That's a good question. And it's hard to answer the self-awareness question because now in hindsight, I could look back at interactions I had in fifth grade and be like, wow, I actually... <laughs> I actually understood that about this person, you know, but like, I didn't know if I was aware of it at the time, but now that I'm aware that this is sort of like my utensil, right? Like I'm a, I'm a, a fork, not a knife. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I've been dealt. I'm a hammer, not a drill. And I'm like, oh, wow. So now if I just go around and think about, look for nails, I could be really effective as a hammer. And so I've, I, I, now I look back in situations in my life. I'm like, wow, you know, I've, I've always had that. Like, this is the hand I've been dealt. But when I became aware of that, Definitely poker helped me with that um, because you try different things, you know, and you try to do the math, strictly math oriented approach. And I worked with people that were just, you know, savants in math and they didn't have the EQ maybe that uh, some of the people that are better at the psychology and the people have. And actually a lot of poker players are just kind of off the spectrum in terms of like not great social skills, but unbelievable at math, almost like 
just crazy with, with their ability of, of numbers and, and patterns and stuff. Um, and they excel as well. And so I tried that theory and I tried to like, you know, get, become the best at that. And I realized like, I'm, I'm hitting a wall here. Um, and so the yeah, poker helped me like expand that awareness of like what I was really good at. Uh, and then, you know, doing that with, with business as well, like going into starting a marketing company and realizing like, wow, I'm really, like, I really enjoy the human interaction side of it, the people component. I understand what drives people. Um, and I, and I really try and dig at that. So when I'm, you know, working with my employees, like I understand that like what works for my relationship with employee A is not working with my relationship with employee B because they're motivated by different things. You know, so if you drop the, the money handle at someone, they might not care. If you drop the purpose handle at someone, they might not care. And it depends on what drives people, you know? And so getting to the root of that has helped me in poker. And then it's also, I've also used that skill to, in, in the real world as well. And it's, um, I think that's where, where my strength lies. You're hitting on a, a bunch of things I'm very interested in. So I, I'm even thinking about when you hit that moment, that realization that maybe mathematics, while you can be pretty good in it, there's people who are going to far exceed what you're capable of. So when you figure out some of those things you're trying to learn, you mentioned you studied under different people. What are those things you're doing when you're first trying to get going in a new skill? That's a good question. So it all, it, a lot depends on your learning type, right? Like I know that I'm the type of person that learns from immersion. So like, I don't like to read the rules. I don't like to, um, you know, watch 15 training videos. I like to just understand generally what's supposed to happen. And then I'm like, give me the object and let me mess around with it and I'll figure it out. So like, I don't read owner's manuals and I know I should. And then sometimes I actually have to go back and force myself, you know, I have to like put on my different hat and, and, treat myself like a dummy to actually do what I know is going to be the most efficient. But my typical way of learning is through immersive experience. So like I've become aware also through poker of what my learning style is. Like I've taken, and, and also in other things in life, you know, I've taken courses, I've gone to like, been in school and I realized that like I learn very well when I'm like with someone and I'm one-on-one -on -one and we can sit down and I can touch it, whatever it is. And so that's the way that I learn. And knowing that is the biggest power, right? It's not about like what things you do to learn. It's knowing how you learn. Because once you know how you learn, then you can start to seek out different things. So for example, um, I, I have people come to me that say, hey, I want to get better at poker. And it's like, I, I, you know, maybe I'll have a phone consult with them and they're, that we're evaluating if private coaching is right for them. And so one of the things I always ask them is like, have you taken any courses? Have you studied on your own? Have you ran the numbers in the lab on your own. And I try and understand like if they've done that and if they've had success with it, because I'm trying to figure out if they learn better through one of our products, like a course where they can just do it yourself and 49 a month, they take our subscription and they just learn on their own. Or if they actually need that immersive experience to be with someone that sits down with them and looks through all their hands. And so just being aware of how other people learn and how you learn is I think the ultimate way to improve at a skill set. Do you have anything you do to try to figure out what would work best for you? You mentioned that playing poker led you to this, but what about for those clients who don't necessarily know what their style is? Any things we can do? Yeah, that's uh, a tough one because a lot of times people come to me and they're, they don't really know what they don't know. And so you're trying to be this, this guide and trying to help them figure out what, what their goals are or what they, how they learn. Um, and so I always tell them to just have more experiences. I think that's the best way, but like not to have passive experiences, but to have actively critical experiences where you're, you're, you're looking at the tangible differences between, you know, when you started in a, something 
and when you finished it. So take a masterclass about something and then measure your competency before and after. Like try, like take a masterclass on cooking online. Okay, $99, you take Gordon Ramsay's cooking masterclass and you're like, okay, let me try to make this muffin before. And then I make it after and like, is it better? Did I absorb the information that I took from this class? And then you go out and you try, you know, hiring a private chef and you, you have them come over to your house and you pay a one-time fee or you take an in-person cooking class, which I've also done. And you see like, did I absorb that? How, how, and a good measure of this is how much fun you're having and how much attention you're paying. So I know like for me, it's, it's easy because my attention, and, and this happens with a lot of people, especially in our modern world where attention is such a big commodity and it's being uh, cut down into shorter and shorter time intervals where people can only pay attention for a shorter amount of time, right? People used to want a long piece of content. Then it's like, well, give it to me in a blog post, give it to me in a video, give it to me in an Instagram post. Now give it to me in a tweet where it's like, I want everything in 160 characters and they, you know, they want the magic formula. So I, I try and look at where am I paying attention to things for a longer period of time? Where's my attention being retained organically, not forced, but where am I actually immersed in something? And I notice that when I sit down with someone and they're, they're inspired, right? If they're like a really inspiring person and they're telling me about something and I'm learning, that's when I'm inspired. So for example, I went to, I told you off, off camera, I went to this road trip through, we did a 3,300 3, mile road trip through um, the, the national parks, through Yellowstone, whatever. And we stopped at this national park, uh, state park up in the north of Napa. And this guy was from the UK and he was passionate about rocks. Okay. We're talking about rocks here. Like rocks are not that exciting. I mean, unless you study rocks, but they're really not that exciting. This guy was so fired up about rocks that I went on this tour and he talked for 40 minutes about the history of all the rocks. Okay. But he was so animated that I was captivated. I was sitting there. I was telling my wife, I'm like, dude, this guy's so interesting. And we're talking about rocks. And I was just focused. I was dialed in. I was laser because I was feeding off this guy's energy. And I know that I learn best when I'm in person in a one-on-one -on -one interactive environment. But if I took a course, you know, even if I was organically interested in rocks, I wouldn't have absorbed that information. So I follow my energy and I see like, okay, this is how I'm, my attention is being retained. And that is how you learn. So I think if people focus on that and that process, that's what's ultimately going to get them the results. I love that advice about following your energy. I, I've been formulating a, a new possible venture idea and the curiosity, the wake up in the middle of the night, excited about it. When, when I have those types of experiences, that's when I, it really starts clicking for me. You mentioned the masterclass. Have you actually signed up for a masterclass? So uh, funny story. Uh, there's, there's a poker, there's two poker masterclasses. And uh, one of them is by Dan Legrand, who's one of the most prominent poker players in, in our industry. And uh, in the masterclass, they have a hand that him and I played. And so I've seen, you know, his masterclass because it's like I was, I was in there, but I actually haven't taken one, but I, my, my wife and I want to, because there's so many different things. And we get these advertisements on, on Instagram where it's like, join the masterclass about this. We're like, oh my God, we could learn this random skill that like you would probably never learn on your own, but because you have a subscription and there's other free content, not free, but other content in there on, you know, different subjects, you're like, oh, I could take a writing class. Then I'll take a cooking class. Then I'll take a photography class. Then I'll take a marketing class. And so I actually want to do it. I sound like a spokesperson for masterclass. I'm actually not signed up, but uh, I would like to do it. And it's on our list. Really. We keep saying it, but then of course, you know, you need the time, right? Like I don't want to do something unless I'm, I'm like an immersive person. I don't want to do something unless I'm all in. And so I know that for me to sit down and do a masterclass, I would want a month where like, if I took a cooking masterclass, I was literally 
you know, implementing everything I learned. So I was buying the ingredients every day and sitting down and actually cooking it. So until I give myself that space, uh, I wouldn't do it. But going off what you said, one thing I'd like to add, uh, following your, you know, your kind of like your energy about something, I think uh, it's really interesting. I've, I've observed a lot of people that, you know, message me about things and, 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 and whatever. And I, I noticed like some patterns and I'm thinking like a lot of times in our modern world, like one of the things that people struggle with the most is finding that thing that they're, that, that they're excited about. Like, it's crazy that we live in a world where we have most of our basic needs met. People aren't struggling every day for, uh, you know, shelter and food and safety. They're struggling for the higher level things on, on Maslow's, you know, sort of hierarchy, which is the, the self-actualization. They're striving for the thing. They're looking for the thing. Even wealthy people, even, you know, quote unquote, successful people are looking for the thing that keeps them excited every day. And that's what I feel like one of our, our real big challenges is uh, in this time, it kind of reminded me you said that is like just so much of the battle is, is doing the effort, going through the effort of saying no to all the things that are like mediocre levels of excitement to scratch away at the surface, to find the thing that you are excited to get up early for. And that's kind of like, you know, using the same metric I talked about in my, you know, retaining attention. It's like, I just sort of measure my days in terms of like, Am I excited to get up at 5 a.m.? No, I'm not going to do this activity, right? And so, like, I just keep looking for things that I'm, you know, what's inspiring to me to get up at 5 a.m., you know? And that's sort of, like, a good metric, I think, for, for that sort of thing with, like, you know, in your daily life, too. I mean, it's so difficult, though. I think a big reason so many people are struggling with it is because every time we jump on Twitter, Instagram, we're seeing all of these different things. And it's almost like, oh, wow, I could try that. I could try that. So it's hard to narrow that down and just take that first step. That's why I love something you brought up where if you wanna potentially learn to be a great chef, take a masterclass. If you like the masterclass, then go out and do a private course. Instead of just trying to jump in on the most difficult thing first, start a little bit smaller and then use the positive of that to build off that. Yeah, I like that too. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, I think that the, the enjoyment of something comes at, you know, a pretty core level of competency. So like almost like a mastery thing. I rather be, um, you know, I try a lot of things and I like I always say, I start a lot of books, but I don't finish a lot, right? So I test out a lot of different things, but I think the real joy in, in, in life and the reward is getting, you know, fluent at something, whether it's an instrument or a language or a skill or a hobby, right? And it's measuring your progress and noticing that improvement. So if you want to get in shape, I think you should get in great shape. You know, people like have these like sort of soft goals, like I want to lose five pounds because they're more realistic, but it's so uninspiring. And, and then the results aren't that rewarding that it's, it, it doesn't move the needle that much. Whereas like if they had, you know, they looked excellent with their shirt off, that would be exciting. Or, or when it comes to learning a language, it's like, oh, I'd like to be able to order, you know, in, 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 uh, when I was learning Italian, I moved to Italy when I was 24 to learn Italian. It was like, I didn't have the goal of trying to be able to order because I knew that wouldn't move the needle. I wouldn't be inspired to learn. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to develop you know, intimate relationships with anybody, but also I wouldn't be able to understand the culture in a deep way. So I was like, I wanted to be fluent. I wanted to be able to have a conversation about finance or um, food or culture or history or psychology or whatever. So I could actually understand deeply how someone else thinks. So I think that like, Focusing on becoming, you know, maybe not great, but very good at something is so much more rewarding than being mediocre at like 10 different things. And so I've tried to focus on like, you know, real competency at thing, at something. And I guess that comes back to why I haven't taken the master class is because 
I know that if I start the cooking one, I'm going to want to be a chef. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, I'm kind of like waiting for the, the time I have space. So I think, you know, it's, it's trying a lot of different things and then immediately saying no. So go, all, go on a lot of first dates, but don't go on hardly any second dates. And you should be able to know after, you know, two, like, let's say you take two hours, two different courses of the cooking class and you try to cook twice. You know, you should know if you're like, there's a difference between struggling at something and then, you know, giving up because it's too hard and then actually not enjoying it. And so, you know, being aware of that difference where you're not like just being lazy because you don't want to go through the effort of learning. I knew that Italian was very extremely one of the most frustrating things I've ever done learning Italian, having an idea in your mind and not being able to convey it to someone, especially someone that uh, like, you, you know, you're, you're maybe you're attracted to or, or you, you have, you know, you want to talk with or you're trying to order something where you actually want something. It's one of the most frustrating things. But I knew that it was something that I actually deeply wanted. And so I was willing to you know, overcome that obstacle to get there. But that was one of the most rewarding things for me is getting to the point where now I actually am fluent, fluent in Italian, as opposed to just being mediocre at like four languages. It's funny. Don't you know how you have those concepts in your head, but you haven't fully heard them articulated properly? So that's exactly what you just described there those past few <laughs> minutes about going and being the best at something. And so I have certain things in my head that I'm, I'm really close to going all in on attempting. And I'm just tr trying to figure out once I decide that, what are those next steps and how do you really start to dive deep on those things? So do you have any frameworks or is it even overall strategies about setting up a day when you're trying to acquire a new skill or even just perfect the skill you're currently doing? I more go off of intuition on these sorts of things. I kind of like block out space in my life where I'm not thinking about a lot of different things. I'm not um, always on my phone on social media. Like I actually removed some social media from my phone. I unfollowed like almost everyone I'm following. And I just try to like limit the amount of noise and clutter in my life. And I really try to create open space to be aware of like things that come in. Because I feel like there's such a big difference between going out and having a potentially spontaneous interaction or experience or learning something or talking to someone and learning about them and they tell you something and then you learn something and then you're excited or stimulated as opposed to going out with headphones on, on robot mode or autopilot on your phone all the time, being closed off to the new experiences that happen. And I know for me, I'm an extrovert. I get my energy from other people and the environment around me. And so it's really important for me to create space where I can go out and be stimulated by something. Even if it's, even if it's just, uh, you know, we, we live in Italy part-time and I go out to a coffee shop and I work there all the time. But a lot of times when I work there, I put my computer down and I'll like just watch other people or I'll, I'll order something and I'll ask the barista three or four questions. And then a conversation will be going or I'll hear a conversation from someone else and I'll pop in and then I'll be stimulated by something and then I'll learn something and that'll give me an idea for a video that I want to create as a piece of content. You know, so it's about being open and aware of the potential interactions that are happening around you especially for people that are extroverted and get their energy from other people. And then also, you know, meticulously constructing your days in a way that you allow that to happen. So I always try and find time to close off my social media not be distracted, make, you know, try and meditate for 10 minutes before I go out and then just be open to creating a daily flow where I'm interacting with other people and I'm in an environment where I'm you're sort of like putting yourself in a position to get lucky. You know, it's like, oh, you want to meet other people. Like you have to be around other people to do that. And so for me, that gets my ideas there. I feel like that really helps me. 
That's such great advice. It's something I need to do more because yes, it's so easy to get consumed in just the day-to-day, the emails, all of those little things that essentially don't end up moving the needle as much as we assume or think they do. You mentioned about living in Italy part-time. What is that like as a entrepreneur, as a professional poker player? How do you balance that? Yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's so different because it, it's just a different culture and a different mindset. So um, it's so different because I grew up in Southern California where like everybody's focus, everybody's goal, everybody's objective was like, you know, they sort of measured their success by like, I'm going to do this. I have an idea. I'm going to turn this into a business. I'm going to scale that business and multiply it and then sell it. Like that's the way that I sort of grew up. Uh, and then there, it's very different. We live in a, uh, like an hour south of Milan and um, it's like an agriculture, very agricultural base. So like if you go out, there's you know fields where people are growing vegetables and, and animals and livestock. It's like beautiful, but it's just a different mentality. Uh, and so Italy in general is also not like they're just, it's not super capitalist entrepreneur mentality where everyone's trying to start a business and duplicate it and scale it. They're like, I've talked to a lot of, you know, Italian people that are, start their own uh, gelateria, for example, they open on the gelato shop and they have like the best gelato, you know? And I, I, I went around Italy for a while uh, interviewing a bunch of gelato makers because I was obsessed with gelato. I took a course on gelato making. And so I asked one of them, like, you know, why don't you open another one? and create a franchise and a chain. And then you don't have to make the gelato because he was there making the gelato every day for like 20 years. I'm like, you know, you know, you know, you know and I was thinking about the American mindset. And he, and he said to me, and when I'm doing this interview and we're at a park in Italy, like it's a beautiful park. He's on a Sunday. He's like sitting there with this four-year-old girl who's like giving, he's giving her a gelato and then they're watching the kids play. He's like, Alec, look at me. Like I'm sitting in this park, you know, like we're sitting here serving gelato and ice cream. We're making people happy. My girl's running around playing in a park. Like I have the best life ever. It's just like a different sort of like value system mentality and like they just evaluate things differently. So it's, it's very different um, for me. And like, you know, it's, it's really stimulating because you have different conversations, you have different types of friends, they have different values. Um, and so it takes some getting used to, but it's also really stimulating and it's really quiet. We live in a town with, um, it's kind of like what you'd see in like under the Tuscan sun or like a you know, typical, like um, a good year where Russell Crowe moves to like some small quaint town in France. We live in a town like that. So we could bike everywhere. There's all the bikes going around. There's the farmer's markets every day in the center of town. And you go out and you know the guy that sells you the oranges and you know the, the barista knows your order and you know the girl that sells you the fish and she knows what you want. So it's really cool and it's really stimulating, but it's also really, really quiet. So I have like more silence and space in my life where I can work intensely on a project. But when I'm in the US, my life is so busy. I'm traveling around, I'm playing poker in different places. I'm coaching people from different places. Um, we're based, you know, between LA, New York, and uh, Vegas. So I'm always on the move. Whereas in Italy, I'm just there. I'm quiet. I'm silent. I could get blocks of work done. And I really think like that balance is so important. I think I would encourage everyone to have a, a play, like a space in their life for like a, a a way of operating where there's a little bit of silence. And for me, I'm a big, I'm big about environment. I'm very like. Um, adaptable to my environment. So when I'm in New York City, I'm just like out all the time. I'm really social. I'm doing whatever. But when I'm in Italy, I just kind of conform to the lifestyle and the environment. So for me, it's been great because it's allowed me to kind of like get things done and, and focus and have silence and space and, and reflection and self-growth that I wouldn't been able to have otherwise. 
This is so fascinating to me, and I've been spending a little bit of time from where I'm usually based, so this is right up my thinking process right now. How is your work different then with Italy? Do you do you go into that, that we'll call it just a, a short vacation, with a different mindset in terms of what you're trying to get done, or is your- Oh, totally. Okay, so, so what is that like when you're about to approach oh, that? Oh, totally. I mean, it's night and day. So for example, um, you know, we spent probably four or five months a year there, okay. and- for example, we have a membership at Conscious Poker, right? So we have a, a membership where there's content is being released all the time. And there are courses inside this membership on various subjects. So one of them is like how to master poker math or how to figure out what bet sizing you should do in poker. And so these courses require me to like sit down and build, you know, five, seven modules of content with worksheets, you know, 20, 30 minute videos, hand reviews, analysis, and then put it together with my team to get it seamless and a beautiful experience for the consumer on the internet. So that requires me to be like focused on a project that requires me to, you know, be somewhere and working in a routine every day for a period of time, like a month or two. So when I'm in Italy, I look forward to it because I'm like, oh, I could build that new course for our membership and I could get that done. But when in the US, for example, I went, so this trip to the US, we came here the end of May. I went to New York for three weeks uh, and then I went to Vegas and then we took this road trip and now I'm back in LA. But in this time, like in New York, I had a few business meetings with marketing people. Um, and, and then I was coaching some clients. In Vegas, I had a keynote speech, five clients. And then I was playing two poker tournaments. In LA, I have family uh, clients I'm coaching. And then I'm playing on a televised poker game five in, for five days. So, I mean, I don't have time to sit and create a course. Um, and so my, I'm more focused on being out there and doing things and connecting with other people and coaching and giving, you know, doing keynotes and talks uh, when I'm in the U S and I'm also traveling so much more. I'm dividing time between three or four places. My dad's in Boise, Idaho. I went up there to see him. Um, I had a client in San Francisco. I was there last week for them. Um, so it's just, it's crazy. So I don't, I, you know, I'm doing other things that I love and enjoy, but I don't, I don't have that space to sit down and, you know, be up at the same time every, every day and in the same routine every day and just, have the space to create a course or, or, or implement a new product that we want to launch at Conscious Poker or whatever it is. Can you talk about that specific course creation, essentially? I'm wondering for someone, I'm asking because I'm personally working on things <laughs> in this space. So I want to sure. know if there's anything that you do that might just be not necessarily known right off the bat by most people, but over time, you've just discovered this works well. Yeah, so the first thing I try and do is really understand what's the most impactful product that we can create? Because it's easy as the, as the idea, the person, idea person or the entrepreneur or, or the expert. This is the curse of the expert is they don't understand what level the, the, their, their customers or clients are on. So like the problems that I have in poker and the things I think are interesting are not interesting or they're not the problems that the people that are going to buy anything from me have. And so I have to really be on the ground and in touch with every thing that people are saying to me. So I literally do like things that I, I think are kind of like crazy. And they might, people might say like, this is not a good use of your time. Or like, why would you do something like this? I actually do it because I love it. And I love talking. I'm like, I, I really am an extrovert. I love talking to other people, but I'll literally open up like a open call in on my YouTube. And I'll just have people call me for like an hour and I'll do a live show on my YouTube or I'll, I'll post something. And then I'll just call people on Instagram that DM me. And I'll talk to him for 20 minutes. And it's like a, a guy that plays, you know, small stakes poker that loves poker and follows me for two years and, and lives in Cincinnati. 
and he just talks to me for 30 minutes. And I'll do this all the time. And so then I intimately understand, like, where is the common thread amongst everyone? Like, what is the, the, the question, the problem everyone has? And then I'm like, okay, let me build a course around that. Let me solve that problem. Let me be the most useful I can be. Because otherwise, if I live in my own head I'm, and I'm the expert, I'll be like, oh, I want to create a course on this technical aspect of this that would be so cool because that's what I want. But that's not what other people want or they, they care about or they buy or what they need. You know, so you have to be the most valuable. You have to create the best product. And I feel like the mistakes I made in the past are doing things that other people just don't care about. And I'm like, this would be amazing. And it's like, nobody cares. So that's the first step. And that's like where I spend most of my time because ultimately if you create a great product and people love it and a hundred people buy it, you know, which isn't many, they're going to go tell other people and then it's going to grow organically. That's like a great way to do it. Um, and then I spend my time trying to figure out like, okay, what is the thing that like I wouldn't want? What is the thing that I'm actually comfortable putting behind a paywall? Because obviously if you're creating a course, it's behind a paywall that I wouldn't say on my YouTube because I have a YouTube channel. We have, we put out videos every week about poker strategy. So like, what's the thing that I would say to my private clients that I wouldn't say on the YouTube because it's like, this is worth paying for. And then I think to myself, okay, I'm asking this person to pay for something, right? That's like the ultimate level of trust, right? And this is like the first interaction someone has with you. They're going to pay you for something. So how do I give them twice what they ask? What I ask. So my course, my membership is $49 a month. How do I make sure that this person says it's worth a hundred? Because when someone values something double what they pay for it, they tell other people about it. When someone values something half of what they pay for it, they're pissed. So it's not about the money you're charging. It's about the, it's about what someone, who your ideal client is content paying what you're asking and they believe it's worth double. So then I try and speak to those people. I try and attract those people. I try and market to those people. I try and make sure that all my copy is filtering out people that aren't going to feel that way. Because we don't want to attract the wrong people. I don't want someone to buy my product that doesn't feel like it's worth it. I'd rather have them use our, our free content and read the blog post or download our free guide or whatever it is. So th those are the two things I really focus on is making the best content possible for the people that it's actually for and then making sure it's worth double what you're asking them to pay for it. Your response just put a loop together in my head where I just connected something I haven't been able to do. So, awesome. so thank you for that. Maybe I'll circle back in a few months on that one. <laughs> sure. I, I, I'm also interested though, you mentioned these two structures and I love this. This is very beneficial. But you also mentioned about all of those other things that go into a finished product, the marketing, yeah. the pricing structure. How do you even figure out the beginning of all of that? Oh, man. So <laughs> yeah, you, you it, can see it's it right tough now. because... <laughs> I mean, something like um, the pricing, right? And this is like a fun one where it's like, it's crazy because you don't really know. Like, let's say you're like, okay, I get 100 people to buy something at $50 or 55 people to buy something at $100. Well, the latter option is better. You have less customers, but you have more revenue. So then sometimes we do like, you know, split tests where we'll just split test two different prices. We'll sell the same product. And sometimes more people buy when it's more expensive. It's crazy. Like a Veblen good, right? Like the Veblen's, uh, I think it was a uh, won the Nobel prize for like the idea that as something gets more expensive, more people want it like a nightclub at a table or a bottle of McKellen. Like the more expensive it is, the more desirable it becomes. So there's this whole other element to psychology where, and I love it because I love the game. So I'm, I'm, I'm captivated by this like phenomenon where it's like, sometimes like I remember I had this one, course. And I was like this business course on poker and it was going to teach you how to like turn poker into a profitable business. And I actually 
put, this is an embarrassing, funny story. I put the project on Kickstarter. This was like five years ago, six years ago, because my friend's like, oh, I put a part on Kickstarter. I made, it raised 50,000 and I had hundreds of customers. And so it was a win-win because we sold the product in advance and we had so many people buy it for a cheap price that now I built this massive following and those people told other people. And I was like, that's genius. So I'm like, why don't I put on Kickstarter and, and, and have it be like, whatever, like a ridiculously low price. Like we were thinking of charging 2000 for this course, like a master course on turn poker into a profitable business. These are for people that want to, you know, make one or two or three or 5k a month playing poker on the side. They're willing to pay a thousand or two for a course because in one month they make that money back and they can make, you know, 30, 50k a year playing poker on the side. So I put it on there for like, there were like different price tiers. Like one of them is 29, one of them is 49, one of them is like 99, you know, and there's different little offerings. And like, it just was a complete dump failed. Like just nobody wanted it. Then I built the course and we, and and it sold for 2000 and it was like, people loved it. And it was a smaller group. And I did a, I did a walkthrough with them. So it was like a a eight week training where I was with them and I walked them through the course. Uh, And they, and then I, I got amazing feedback. Like people loved this product. They, they, really liked the course, the material, and it's crazy. So sometimes it's about how you market it. Uh, and again, it's always about making sure, you know, you always want to like come back to what I, I feel like is, is, is right, which is you're offering twice the values. You're not, you can't, you're not going to, with the price split testing, you're not going to just charge whatever, because you're, you know, it's just not fair. You're going to have unhappy customers. It's bad business, but there's so many, and this is just one nuance, right? And on certain marketing platforms, like if you use, um, whatever, if you a landing page builder, you can actually do split tests and you can see where, which one converts better. And sometimes you have these theories, but you know, the numbers never lie. And I sort of feel like that's uh, something that poker's really helped me with. You can have an intuition about how to play the hand, but if you run the numbers in the lab, it's going to tell you whether you had the right odds. Right. And so that's kind of how I, I look at things like marketing with Facebook ads. Like you can have an idea that you're going to run this marketing campaign and you're going to offer this free product and capture emails and then send them an email campaign after to ask them to pay for something. And that's going to convert to the point where you can show a profit and you'll be like, this is a great offer. I'm giving people stuff for free. The content I'm charging for is like $8. This is worth a hundred and it's going to, everyone's going to buy it. Right. But then sometimes, you know, like it doesn't work like that. Or sometimes it costs more to get the people than, than you're, you're selling things on the back end for or whatever it is. So you have to just try and the numbers never lie. And so that's always a fun sort of crazy thing where it's sometimes things work that you would think, why is this working? And sometimes things don't work that you would totally expect to work. So I guess the short answer is you have to experiment. The numbers never lie. And you have to really be able to analyze the data and separate the noise from the facts. So you have to understand like which variables are actually influencing something like a sale. So if you change, you know, only change one variable at a time. So if you're running an ad on Facebook, um, you know, only change the photo. Don't change the photo and the copy because then if it starts converting, you're like, well, what was it? The photo or the copy? <laughs> Sometimes you could have the exact same ad and you'll literally add, change the photo and add two emojis and then it like converts. It's crazy. I mean, some of the things don't make sense, um, but part of the game and it's fun. I like the analysis aspect of it. Yeah. Speaking about that analysis aspect, you mentioned the fun and crazy with technology, social platforms changing so constantly. Is there any yeah. of those fun, different experiments you tried out, but are actually really working well for you guys? Or even it could be a specific platform that you just find with your audience works well. Yeah. So we've tried YouTube pre-roll ads where like, you know, you'll hop on YouTube and be like, Hey guys, I have this, this product or uh, Google ads where people are actually, you know, Google's totally different because people are searching with intent. So someone types in, um, 
you know, how to get better at poker, that person is a totally different space than someone that's on Facebook that's scrolling through their feed with 12 minutes in their lunch break that has no, they might have an interest in poker or get like organically, they might be interested in poker, but they're not scrolling through Facebook to learn how to play poker. So our hypothesis was like, oh my gosh, we're going to pay more for clicks on Google, but it's obvious we should go there because someone typing how to play poker, how to get better at poker is obviously going to want our product, right? But we found that like Facebook just sort of works better. Like a lot of people like, which is for us, it's Facebook just works better. So it's crazy because you're thinking like these people aren't searching for anything. Why would they be interested in that or Instagram? But, um, and if I notice my own, you know, one thing that I try and notice that I really try and be aware of is my own behavior. So like, what am I captivated by? So I, I read all my ads. I, I love getting ads because um, I, love, I love the psychology behind it. I love the game. I love marketing. So I'm, I love reading my ads that come to me on Instagram. And I read all the copy. And then I look at the video. And then I click on the landing page and I read all the copies. And a lot of times I answer my email, which is annoying because I have to like undo the email and it's like, oh my gosh. But then I, I'll do it because I'm like, I want to see what they send me. I want to see everything. Sometimes, you know, so I, I enjoy that process. And I think the curiosity is what really helps. And then being aware of your own patterns. Like what captivates you? Like what makes you stop doing what you're doing and holds your attention for a long, a long period of time. So that anytime I find myself a minute, two minutes into a video or a sales letter or an ad, I'm like, wait a minute, let me send this to my team. Let's talk about this because this is really good. And then how do we, you know, like take the elements of that and then just change the language to what we're, what we're focused on or how do we make it better? And then how do we like, you know, use that as a pillar and then split test, like, you know, test out other things. And I've done that in the past. And that's what um, a large part of the fun is for me is I, you know, I enjoy the process. It doesn't feel like work, but um, I, I notice my own patterns and behavior. And then I notice what gets me. And then I try and duplicate that. That is such great advice, following what makes you interested, following those patterns and behaviors. You were talking a little while ago just about the overall frameworks that you're using, mostly psychology-based around poker. What other frameworks do you use when sitting down at a poker table? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Well, I, I have a default strategy going in, right? So like in poker, you're gonna have your overall game plan. Just like if you're sitting down in a chess match, you could look at your opponent and think like, what is he going to do? But ultimately you're going to have like a strategy that's like, this is a winning strategy, right? So you're coming in with your own premeditated strategy where like, these are the, no, this is what I do. This is the knowledge that I have in the game. But then I'm really trying to understand how the game is playing. So I'm going to try to understand like, what is nuanced about this particular table, about this particular situation that deviates from the rules. So is everyone playing really aggressive and crazy because everyone's gambling and it's late at night and there's, you know, extra money being added to the pot. It's called a straddle, but are people just kind of like gambling a lot? Or is this a table where everybody's been playing a long time and everyone's even and nobody wants to lose a lot of money because it's late at night and they're about to quit and they don't want to play big pots because they want to lock up the win and they're playing really tight. So then I try and understand what level they're on. I'm like, okay, if they're playing really tight and they don't want to play big pots, I'm going to be the one that takes the aggression and maybe bluffs them because, you know, I'm going to be one level ahead of them and I'm going to zig when they zag. If I see that they're gambling and everyone's playing big pots, I know I have to play a lot tighter. I can't be in there with marginal hands because I'm going to get bluffed. I'm going to get raised. I'm going to be put in tough spots. I got to wait for really strong premium hands, and then I'm just going to trap them. I'm going to just call, and I'm going to let them do the betting. I'm going to let them do the raising. I'm going to let them bully me, right? So I'm going to give them the illusion that my hand is A when it's really B, 
So I play my hand the opposite of the way that they think I would play it, right? So then, then lastly, I'm trying to understand like you know the the the, the current state that the people are in because it's it's too superficial to understand how someone thinks about the world because they might think about the world in a certain way, but in this current moment, they might be in a different emotional state, right? Then you might have a an ex jock that's you know super buff guy with tattoos that's the the you know the rock star in, in high school that wants to, and you would think like this guy's going to be, you know, ego driven. He's going to want to bluff everybody. He's going to play really aggressive. But if in this moment he just won a big pot and he's about to quit a game, his current state is not reflective of his superficial appearance. His current state is that he's going to play tight. He's going to play conservative. He's going to lock up the win. He's not going to bluff you in a big pot. So if he makes a big bet, he probably has it. And where people go wrong is they say, this is the label I've put on someone. I've identified them as A, and then they don't change their mind because they're not aware that, that people are always changing their current emotional state throughout an eight-hour period, especially in an emotionally charged game like poker, where you could win and lose. In our games, you could win and lose a, a friggin' car or a house in a hand. And when someone's winning or losing a car and a house, I don't care what that person's typical emotional state of mind is like after they get up and meditate or work out in the morning, they're in a currently different friggin' emotional state right now, right? Because there's ego at play. It's four in the morning. They just lost a house. You know what I'm saying? So they're, they're in a different state and you have to be aware of how, where, where they're currently at, not who they actually are. And so that's what I'm trying to figure out. When I get down at the table, I'm trying to figure out who is this person, but where are they right now? And every single hand is a new opportunity to see how that last action potentially changed where they're at right now. The ability to understand change and, and be willing to change. You mentioned meditation earlier. Is there anything else you do just to become better at understanding those levels of change and then being able to adapt to them as well? Yeah, just, you know, curiosity with other people is a really good one. I mean, meditation helps for like your own sort of presence and, and awareness and understanding your own thoughts and your own state of mind. But I think really with other people, it's about like being genuinely curious, like, and that's, I don't know, I think it's something that you could maybe, you could maybe force, but it's sort of something that has to be, I feel like genuine, it has to be the best place. Maybe you could fake it till you make it and like ask someone three questions. And, you know, I find that when I have to force things, I like to make it a game. Not that this is something I have to force, but whenever I have to do force something, I have to make it a game because when you play a game, it's, it becomes stimulating and fun. So if you want to optimize your morning and save as much time as possible, I'm like, let me see how fast I can get these things done without multitasking. So then I make it a game because I need to be efficient that morning because I don't have a lot of time like I did this morning to get ready for this podcast. I had to be really efficient to get the things I wanted to do done, done. So I, instead of stressing about those things, I made it a game. And so if it's the same vein with some people that are maybe introverts and they don't, you know, they don't naturally want to interact with a lot of people, make it a game. Say like, what, let me learn something about this person's childhood. And let me learn something about this person that uh, I, I'm going to, uh, let, let me, let me try and learn something, a teaching from this person, you know, a, a piece of wisdom that they've been imparted or that they've learned in their life. And to learn that is hard. You can't just be like, Hey, what's up, Johnny? Uh, or what's up guy next to me playing poker in a big pot. Let me tell me the most interesting thing your father taught. You know, you can't just start there. Right. So like maybe making it a game where you're like today, I'm going to go out and I'm going to learn two interesting pieces of wisdom from someone in the world. Right. And that's hard. That's a game. That's a challenge. But to do that, you have to ask the questions. You have to be curious. You know, you have to interact with other people in a way that really is genuine. Uh, and so I feel like if it doesn't come naturally, 
to make it a game. But I, I feel like I have that innate curiosity about other people and life and psychology that it, it, it's a little easier for me maybe just because I was born an extrovert. I don't think you necessarily cultivate that. I think it's part of who you are. But, um, but that really helps me because I, I really do like to learn about other people. Like I, I rather have a great conversation at a poker table than have headphones on and listen to music. So that kind of helps me navigate and, uh, and get better at just meeting other people, connecting with other people. And then obviously, you know, it's not all premeditated, but you are using that information to make better decisions in poker too. So it's kind of like two birds with one stone for, for someone like me. Oh, absolutely. I'm really interested about the whole gamification aspect and in even how you formulated that idea I asked because I became really interested in figuring out how we can gamify life more after a conversation with Daniel Gross. He uh, created the searchlight function that was bought by uh, by Apple and then now created oh. Pioneer. So he, he has these really interesting frameworks around gamifying your life. So when did you start doing this? It's a good question. I always think that I've sort of loved games. Like even growing up, I would play card games with family. My dad taught me chess at a young age. I loved games. And I always found that I was the most like, you know, found the most enjoyment in things when there was like an objective. And then you get to like, okay, I am where I am now. My objective is some distant point in the future. And everything that happens between now and that time, you're in a flow state. You're not, you're not stressed. You're not thinking about other things. You're present. Your, ener- your, your, your attention is focused on the task at hand. And that's what we all want, right? We all want to be in that flow state where you're actually like deeply immersed in that activity. And if you make something a game, then it it has that element. And I think this is why goals are so useful. Goals aren't like goals are so arbitrary and they're actually not that important. You're only satisfied when you hit your goal for like 10 minutes until you want the next thing. Like that great quote in, in Mad Men, happiness is the moment before you want more happiness. And it's like the same thing when you hit a goal. It's like you're happy for like, intermittently and then you want the next goal but what the goal allows you to do right if you're like i want to be in i want to run i want to set a goal to complete a triathlon in under three hours okay so it wasn't that like this would this is totally arbitrary like nobody in the world cares if i complete a triathlon in three hours i don't i don't get any benefit from it like it just doesn't matter at all but at the same time every day when i got up and went training or i signed up for the event or i would do my whole thing and i would i would track my workouts and i would measure my speed it was fun it became a game it was like you know what gets measured gets managed so i would start to measure all of my results and i would say like how fast can i ride and run how fast can i bike how fast can i transition from the run from the swim to the bike uh, you know how can i buy a faster bike that does this new thing or, or bike in this different position. So everything became a game and everything became measured. And so measuring things is really important because it allows you to kind of keep track, which allows you to see progress, which I think probably releases some hormones that makes you more excited, right? Probably releases dopamine or serotonin, whatever. And, and you feel that progress, you get excited about something. So anything you could gamify is, is a great thing to do. And sometimes in the morning, like I I said, when I'm like stressed or I have like a lot of things I want to do in a short period of time, I don't stress about it at all. I just make it a game. I'm like, oh, like today I I knew I had no time in the morning to like check things. So I'm like, I'm going to give myself five minutes to uh, check email and social media, which is not a lot of time. Five minutes is really not a lot of time. But I was like, let me see if I can do it in three. And I got off today in four, but I was like, oh, it was cool. You know, so instead of stressing like, oh my God, I have so much to do in five minutes. I can't do it all. I'm like, let me just see if I can do it in four instead of five. And so it was fun for me. Because my mindset while I'm looking at things and checking email and I had to respond to my team to a message on Skype about a video we're trying to release and whatever wasn't like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do. I have this podcast. I got to, you know, I want to get on a run and take a cold shower and all this stuff. It was just like, let me see how fast I can do it. So then it became fun for me. And I've tried to do that. I've tried to approach that like sort of 
playful approach to things in life. And it makes even longer blocks of time more exciting as well. Right. So I've, I've done it on the micro scale, but then I also think you can do it in the big things as well. And for me, that's been really, you know, made things enjoyable that would seemingly be stressful or boring. When you mentioned about your time with the triathlon and trying to get each one of those incremental improvements, it made me think back. I think it was around the UK biking team. Are you familiar with this at all? What they did? No. Their coach came in. I'll have to send you the uh, the article or research on this. And he basically tried to get incremental improvements in every aspect they do, releasing grams of weight off the bike, improving overall sleep, improving hydration. And within two years, they won three straight, I think, uh, national championships or world championships. And it was about those, just those little tiny things. So I think you'd appreciate that. We're going to talk about conscious poker in a minute. I'm interested. Are there other things? I know you're an immersive type of person, but things that someone who maybe isn't immersive can do. Are there certain books, other resources you enjoy consuming? Oh man. Um, big question. I'm not sure I have something off the top of my head. I've actually recently tried to like declutter a little bit because I feel like, um, there's this, kind of push I see happening in, in culture today to optimize time. For example, you go to the gym and while you're at the gym, you listen to a podcast, but so that you can, you know, instead of listening to music, it's more like EV, like, right. It's higher expectation. It's more productive. Let's, let's measure with that metric to listen to a podcast. And you could do two things at once. You can have a great workout while you're listening to a podcast. But not only that, you're going to listen to it at like 1.25 or 1.5 X speed, depending on how fast they talk. Me, maybe 1.25, but something like that, right? So you're like, okay, I'm going to cram these multitasking activities into one sort of thing, right? Or so like, you know, while you're doing one thing, you're doing another thing. Um, or even if it's not multitasking, you're just trying to optimize like every spare time you have. And so what I've tried to do is, is declutter a little bit and have a little bit less noise in my life. I'd like to take a you know, maybe unpopular opinion on this one because I feel like there's so many uh, resources out there for people that are like, this is more content, more content, more content, watch this, follow this, think that, you know, emulate this. Whereas I feel like allowing more space to do things while you're actually doing them and have not have noise is a better place to create ideas, especially if you are an idea person, right? You're, you're the idea person of your company or your business, you're an entrepreneur, you have a new idea. For me, it's about not having noise. So I actually like to take a walk while I'm taking a walk. Or for example, I, you know, one of the, I'm, I'm married and one of the, the, the things that is like my responsibility in the house is the dishes. And I used to lament doing the dishes. So I, obviously I made it a game and I tried to do it as fast as possible. I did all that stuff. But then I actually was like always, you know, listening to a podcast while I did it. So I would, you know, take 20 minutes, put everything away and whatever. So I put a, I meticulously go and put a podcast in and then do the dishes. But now I actually just try and, you know, block out that time and look at that like a time to sort of like, I don't want to call it meditation because it has this connotation to it, but just like let your mind wander and observe your ideas. And so sometimes I get great ideas while I'm on a walk doing nothing or doing the dishes or whatever. I actually got an idea to improve um, these thermoses that you see everybody carrying around, right? You see all these hydroflasks, everybody has a freaking thermos. So I got an idea for how to improve it. I won't say what it is, but, but I was like, this happened because I wasn't listening to podcast. I wasn't consuming other content. And so I've tried to allow more time in my life just to think because I feel like you're always stimulated by something. And when you're not stimulated, you're bored. So you're checking your phone and scrolling on social media. So even those little moments, those little interactions where, you know, um, a common one is you're at a restaurant, you're on a date, you're with a friend, they go to the bathroom, you check your phone because you don't want to be bored for the, the, the six minutes, the four minutes when you're in between bites of food and someone goes to the restroom, 
But instead, I actually just try and, and I don't do this all the time, I'm not like some you know, Yoda master, but I just try and look around and like listen to what other people are doing or saying or watching and, and experience things and try and be more like present to have these, your time for your subconscious to just like radiate the ideas that you don't have time, you know, you get suppressed throughout the day. So that's kind of my take on it. No, I mean, unbelievable advice. It's so funny. I actually, I'm the dish guy as well. And I was doing the exact same thing, but recently- <laughs> No more podcasts or consuming content at the time, and I just let my mind drift. And it is unbelievable some of the ideas that come. It's funny. I finished up a, a multi-hour meeting with a mentor the other day, much wiser, much older, and his final parting words were, make sure you give yourself time to think because it's so vital. So I loved that 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 culmination there of that meeting. Conscious poker. If there is yep. someone who's interested in getting into poker, you guys have some unbelievable free content. What can someone expect to when they come to the site, see some of your, your videos, and then what could be the next level of getting involved with you? Thanks for that. Um, sure. So I, the first place to start, I guess the most captivating place to start with the, the way most people come to know me is through YouTube. Um, put out new videos every week, youtube.com slash conscious poker. Um, and we put out new strategy videos every week. Anything from mindset, lifestyle, um, strategy, question and answers. I have an Ask Alex show where people ask me questions about poker uh, and I answer those in videos. So we, we also review the most interesting hands that are happening around the world. So we recently just released a series of hands all from the 2019 WSOP main event. So all the biggest hands from the main events are on the YouTube with my analysis and it's all free. Uh, so that's a great place to start. Subscribe to the YouTube, check that out. I also have a... Um, personal YouTube where I share lessons I learn in poker that apply to life and business. And that's at Alec Torelli. So all the conscious poker socials and website is all the poker strategy side of things. Whereas Alec Torelli is all the like personal side of things where you can learn, you know, things I learned. So it depends on what social you want to follow or what you're looking for from me. Uh, then I would say, check out the website conscious poker. There's like, that's like a little bit more next level where there's like in-depth blogs about cash game poker strategy or tournament poker strategy or specific things like sizing your bets accordingly when you're playing, which is super important, but something that people don't generally get right. Uh, and then for people looking for that next level, we do have a membership at Conscious Poker. We have a free, we have a free hand reading system, which you can download um, for free on the site. Um, enter your email. That'll, we'll send you an email with that as long as, as well as some follow-up content that, that's some of our best. Um, and then we do have a membership at Conscious Poker as well, which is a monthly... Um, membership where you get new strategy videos every week. And again, it's, it's behind that paywall. So it's like more in-depth stuff where I use poker programs and I really show people how to study like the pros. I show people the review exercises that I'm doing after a game. Uh, we have courses in there. We have a private Facebook group and we have a monthly group coaching call with me. So every month I host everybody. We just had it yesterday on a group coaching call and they could literally, I'll review hands that I play that I don't share anywhere else. Like hands that I played during the World Series of Poker main event. So I documented all my hands and I released them in the membership. And then I open it up to questions. So people could ask me questions about why I did what I did. And I also review other people's hands. So I'll take people's hands that are in the membership and review them. And then they could ask questions on it about that and any other subject. So there's there's quite a bit there um, on, on both the Conscious Poker and the Alec Torelli socials and website. So Check it out. If you're wow. interested in more from me. Alec, if they didn't know if you had a lot going on, they just understood that without a doubt. <laughs> I, I love the amount of content you provide. It truly is resourceful, not only for poker players, but how to navigate life, problems, issues, things of that nature. So I really do appreciate it. I really thank you for joining us on What Got You There. I know everyone got a ton of value out of this one. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me, and uh, thanks for listening.
You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoyed the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you?